I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Why did the chicken cross the road? Uh, so do you know the story about the chicken was going down the one side of the road and he had his friend the pig with him. And as they walked down the road they came across the diner. And it looked like the diner was having some problems. This is a popular diner. But there was a sign outside saying, uh, having trouble getting the uh, supplies we need, desperate need of eggs and bacon, please uh, help us out with the contribution if you can. So the chicken looks at the pig and says, oh, let's cross the street and help them out. And the pig says, no, I don't think so. And the chicken says, yeah, come on, why not? And the pig says, for you it's a donation. For me it's total commitment. (laughs) So, it's Commitment Sunday. Change the title, change the concept. We're thinking of the word commitment. If you like to watch college football like I do, you know that there's a whole process where a good high school football players are recruited... Uh, heavily by college football teams and uh, sometimes there comes a point where they make a commitment. So uh, when A&M recently played Clemson, A&M did really well, didn't win the game but they did really well and at the end of the game a high school student made a verbal commitment to A&M based on what he saw. He said that's where I want to be. Damien somebody? Demon Damon. Something like that, sorry. As soon as he verbally committed to A&M, guess what happened? All the other colleges that wanted this kid start to recruit him. Start to run down A&M. Oh, A&M's not the place to go. You'd rather come to us. You'd do better at our place. So they have this whole process. So as soon as these kids commit, sometimes then there's a lot of pressure where people do this kind of negative recruiting. You don't want to go there. You want to come to us. It doesn't mean anything. So they can do a silent commit. Uh, My son Sam has been giving me a tutorial in this, by the way. I don't know all this stuff. So you can do a silent commit, so you can say privately to the college I commit, you can make it public. It doesn't really mean anything. Some people commit because they're really keeping their options open, they want a spot. It doesn't mean anything until they sign on signing day. And it made me think about my own Christian faith. Have I just given this a verbal commit? Am I keeping my options open? Have I really thrown in myself with this cause? with no turning back. Well, uh, to me, that's a helpful illustration of what it means to commit. And, uh, and I think sometimes when we flirt with the religious life, play with faith, we put ourselves in a difficult situation. We do like to keep our options open. But uh, the reality is God calls us to jump in with both feet if we want to jump in. A lot of us, you know, grew up in the church, and so we don't have the... the uh, luxury of doing what Jesus said to do, which was, in Luke chapter 14, count the cost. And he said, if someone's going to war, before he goes to war and declares war, he sits down. Do I have enough army to defeat that army? If I don't, then I'm not going to start the war. If I'm building a tower, I'm going to sit down and say, do I have what it takes to finish the tower? Because if I don't, I'll have a half-built tower and it'll be a huge embarrassment to me. The religious life is a lot about commitment. Last week we had a baptism. Yay, back there. 
baptism, the, the imagery of water is primarily the imagery of drowning, of putting to death anything that would keep us from God. So that we can participate in the death of Christ and be raised and live the life of Christ with him that he calls us to. In marriage, there's a, uh, if you look at the language of our marriage ceremony, it's, uh, the, at the heart of it is a promise, is a vow, is a commitment. There is the, word, the language of love, but it's not primarily about love. And that's why I think when people live together before marriage, when they say, well, I, we're going to live together to see if it works, they assume that marriage is built on something other than a promise. And the reality is, after many years of study, people who live together before marriage are more likely to be divorced than others. I did two funerals this week, and there'll be a funeral for Father Bates' mother. I'm hoping I can get to it. And at the end of this service, we come to the section called the committal, when they are put in the ground, and the finality of it is comforting in this wonderful way, this strange way that we give them back to God. And so we come to our gospel reading. If you'd like to turn with me, if you would, to our reading in the gospel of Mark. Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi and asks his disciples, who do people say that I am and who do they answer? They answer John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Well, to put it in context, you need to remember what happened to prophets in the Bible. They did not usually have a good ending. They usually had a bad ending. And so when people are saying, who is Jesus? Well, I think he's one of the prophets. There probably is an assumption that it may not go well. They seem to get themselves into trouble a lot. And then Jesus says, yeah, that's what they say, but who do you say? You've been with me. You've seen me. You've lived with me. Who do you say that I am? A great question for us. Who do we say that Jesus is? And Peter gets it really right just before he gets it really wrong. He says, you're the Messiah. That is the Christ, the anointed one. You're special. When they said the anointed, they tended to think of King David. King David was that figure in the Old Testament that everybody longed for. Could someone like King David come back and demonstrate his power, his commitment to God? And could he help us get rid of these Romans and assert our importance and significance? And then Jesus goes on to say, yeah, okay, you're right. I am the Messiah. And I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. And I'm going to be killed. But that's not the last word because I'll rise again. I'll come back to life. But it doesn't make sense to the disciples. That's not what King David did. King David died in his old age. He was powerful. He was rich. He was popular. Jesus, what are you saying? And so Peter comes and says, he begins to rebuke him. The language is very strong. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Jesus, don't you get it? That's not what you're supposed to do. And Jesus rebukes Peter. Having given him a name before about this is the rock I'll build the church on, he now says, you're Satan. Get behind me. Your, na- your mind is on human things, not divine things. Now, what does it mean to have your mind on divine things? Some people think of Christians as uh, being of so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Sort of head in the clouds. But what does it mean then to think 
of heavenly things, on divine things, to set our mind. Is it to see things from God's perspective rather than our own? To see things in the context not only of today but of eternity? To see things with our heart and soul and not only with our physical eyes? To evaluate things not how they can benefit us but how they can benefit God and others? To put our trust in God and not in technology or our own resources. To do things not primarily for ourselves, but for others. So in verse 34, he calls the crowd so with the disciples and he says to them, what do you want? And it poses the question, what do you want? What do I want? What is my wish? What is my desire? What is my passion? What do I really want? And sometimes in the busyness of life we never sit down and say what does that really want and then we don't communicate that to our loved ones and they're kind of confused like well, what do you want <laughs> you ever have people say, to, say that to you? You, get, you get worked up and you get strong feelings but they're not articulated and he says if you want if you desire if it's your passion to be my follower now remember these are people who have left everything to be with Jesus they've seen this great thing unfolding and they want to be there. But now they're told, here's three things. If you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And the question is, are we prepared to do that? Let them deny themselves. What does it, what does it mean to deny ourselves? One of the commentators had this great phrase. It's, he said it means to say no to the idolatry of self-centeredness. To say no to the idolatry of self-centeredness. Of course we have to take care of ourselves. We had a great discussion in middle school, uh, Sunday school today. Now does it mean that we, look, I'm a, you know, eighth grade, I want to get good marks. Is that wrong? Well, no, it's not wrong, but why do you want to get good marks? So you can go and be used by God to bring a blessing and develop skills and get into a good college to get a good career so you can help God? That's good. But it's about God at the center. Take up your cross. Last Friday was September 14th. Do you know what September 14th is? Holy Cross Day. It's a day on our calendar. Now, I don't really recognize it very much. I don't remember. But there's a day. Not to remember his, the day of his crucifixion, Good Friday. But it's a day to remember what's it mean to me to take up my cross. I wear these beautiful crosses. Very decorative. i got to tell you a story. So... Uh, Father Price has this beautiful St. James, uh, Saint, uh, not Saint, uh, James Avery cross. And I was admiring it one day. I said, wow, I love that cross. It's so pretty. And it's not made anymore. And uh, two days later, he came to me and said, I would like you to have this cross. You liked it, and I would like you to have it. It's just, it really impacted me, David. It was really grateful. It just demonstrates a heart turning to God. And then to follow me. We tend to think of God uh, sending us out into the world. We're really safe here with God, right? We can sing the songs we know and all. It's, it's kind of... And then we know God's going to send us out there to do his work. It's going to be hard. And we forget, you know, Jesus is already out there doing it. He's out there with the homeless and the oppressed and the brokenhearted. He's out there doing his work. And he says, would you come with me? Would you follow me? Would you be with me? And then I'm going to skip some of this. Let's just go down to the last verse. For those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. 
Are you ashamed of Christ? If I asked you that, you'd say, no, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. If somebody asked me, but what does it mean to be ashamed of him? Do we sometimes treat him as irrelevant, inconvenient, slightly embarrassing, kind of hesitant to, to bring something up or to speak a word because we don't want to be known as a religious holy roller or holier than thou? God calls us to follow him into the world and to love like he did and to give ourselves like he did, to trust him to meet our resources. St. Francis you know, does an amazing job of reaching out, but we can go further, we can do more, we can know the joy of giving, whether it's giving to Mam or going down to Lots, going to Woodview. There's just so many ways that we do it. And I hope that if you haven't found your sort of place in, in one of those ministries that you will because it does bring such joy and we give of our resources we commit we show and demonstrate our commitment by being with him do you remember that song from Godspell so long ago our desire is to see him more clearly to love him more dearly and to follow him more nearly day by day in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit Amen <laughs>